All right, kind of get us to where we need to be because we just can't jump right into the verse because it would sound might not sound appropriate as far as knowing what's going on. But we talked about that the first, well, chapter four and chapter five is basically about what? Chapter four, what is John wanting us to think about? God. And what about God? He's still on his throne. And we talked about chapter 4 and chapter 5 is here because starting at chapter 6, boy, he's just going to lay some things out that are terrifying, that are awful, that are scary. And he wants the people who are reading this book, especially the first century Christians, to know that no matter what they hear, no matter what they read, no matter what they see, God is still on his throne. He's still in charge. All right, chapter 5, the emphasis is on what? Jesus, and how that he is our redeemer. In fact, he is pictured in chapter 5 as a lamb who has been slain, but he is standing. And, of course, chapter 6, I mean, chapter, verse 6 of chapter 5 ends with him having the same attributes of God. But why is it so important that the lamb has now shown up on the scene? What is, why, what is the occasion that now the Lamb has arrived. All right, opening up the scrolls. Opening up the seven seals of the scrolls. So the Lamb has shown up. And the reason why the Lamb has shown up is because the question has been asked, who is worthy? And, of course, when the question was asked the first time, the answer that came back from all over the world is that no one was worthy. And, of course, that made John weep, made him cry uncontrollably. But then one of the elders kind of tapped him on the shoulder and says, We have someone here who can open it. He's the lion of of Judah. But he goes from being a lion to becoming a lamb, a lamb who is slain. And so after John is introduced to this lamb, that's where we're going to pick up in verse 7. But I think... We need to read verse 6 again before we can really get into verse 7. Not that we're going to say anything more about it, but just to set the stage for what's going to happen next because what's about to happen next is just unbelievable, amazing. Oh, if you don't, if you don't get this into your head and see it in your mind, you're missing something. But it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And then verse 7 says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Once again, the King James has book, but we're talking about a scroll here. So now we visualize in our mind here in verse 7 that this lamb came up to God, the one who was likened to God on the throne, and he takes the scroll out of his hand. Now here's the first question for the test tonight. How in the world does a lamb take a scroll out of somebody's hand? With his paw, his little bitty paw. Here, me have that. Put them both together. He does it like that. What's the point I'm making? It's not literal. And we got to be reminding ourselves all the time. If you hit something in the book of Revelation, you say, oh, wow. That's... Keep in mind, we're dealing with symbols that are expressing a picture for us to get the overall picture. And here's a good example of it. This lamb's not going to walk up to the throne of God and take that scroll away from him. 
I mean, that's, you know, I guess he could use his little lamb teeth or something. But that's not the point. It's the idea that it's Jesus who is worthy to open this up. That Jesus is the lamb. He is the one who is worthy. Now, once again, the question needs to be asked, why is he worthy? What makes him the worthy one? Yes, Julie. All right, he's sinless. He is the only one who has the right to open it because he's the only perfect one. And what else are we going to say? And he's God. What else, Jeff? And he paid the ultimate price and he overcame. So all those things added together makes him worthy. I'm not worthy to open it, neither is anybody else on the earth because I'm not sinless. I, I can't be justified by the law no matter how hard I try. I cannot be sacrificed to redeem mankind. I am not God. I am not worthy, but the Lamb is worthy. Okay? So make sure we get all this picture in our mind what's happening here because that's what needs to happen when you read Revelation. Remember, we started in the throne room of God. You got one likened to God on this throne, which is described with all these different jewels and whatnot. Then you got the four beasts and the 24 elders around him. You got all these co-centric circles, all these things happening around the throne. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the throne, the one who is worthy appears, the lamb. And now the lamb has taken the scroll from the one sitting on the throne. And look what happens next, folks. There's an eruption. There's a dramatic chain, erect, uh, uh, chain reaction. There's going to be three waves of something happening. Have you ever watched a television movie or something or even seen it on the screen and like there's a, a bomb exploding in outer space, maybe in a Star Wars movie, the bomb will explode and there will be all these rings coming out like that? You know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening here. When the Lamb takes a hold of that scroll from God, boom! All of a sudden, this dramatic scene takes place with these co-central circles of praise erupting, starting in the center and working its way out. There's three different waves that's going to happen here. And we're being told this because we're supposed to see this in our minds and, and, and realize the magnitude and, and the praise and the majesty that's happening here when the Lamb finally takes the scroll and is going to be allowed to open it up. So make sure you see that in your mind because that's the whole point of this. We're seeing word pictures in our mind. So notice what happens in verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the book or the scroll, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vial or the King James has vowels, bowls is a better translation, full of odors, and better translation there is incense. So we got um, having every one of them harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Now we'll go through these verses and kind of pick them apart here in just a minute, but I didn't want to lose the picture of what we got here. When Jesus takes the scroll out of God's hand, the first wave hits, if you will. And it's the first group of people that are around the, the, 
the throne of God. It's the four beasts that we learned about in chapter 4. It's the 24 elders we learned about in chapter 4. And they began praising God, singing to Him, it says, in a new song. And it talks about all the wonderful things that the Lamb is. Once again, we're going to look at these verses and kind of pick them apart a little bit, but don't miss the big picture of what's happening here. This is like just a tremendous, dramatic thing that's taking place here, and it's going to get bigger and better as these circles start pushing out. Okay? I hope everybody can see that in your head. All right? So when he had taken the scroll, it says that the 24 elders and the four beasts fell down before the Lamb, And it says that every one of them, the King James Version, has harps. I was just curious. Anybody have anything different? Okay. It's interesting. The um, word for harp here is katara, which is the word we get our word guitar from. So it's more than likely not a harp. It's more than likely a a lyre or a lyre, depending on how you want to pronounce it, because that's one of the words that was used for that. It could maybe be be a harp, but it's a string instrument. I just think it's interesting. This is not on the test, but the word there is where we get our guitar word from, guitar. starts with a K, though, not G. All right. Now, here's a question we sometimes run into. Obviously, we know from studying God's word and because of the law of exclusion that the early church did not use instruments of music, and therefore we don't use instruments of music in our worship service. But every now and then you'll run into somebody who will say, well, there's going to be harps in heaven. Why can't we use harps here on this earth? In other words, why can't we, they worship with harps in heaven. Why can't we worship with musical instruments on earth? And how would you respond to that? All right. That's the easiest way to explain it. Does anybody believe there's literal harps in heaven? Maybe. You might believe that. But then if that's the case, then what's the very next couple words say in the verse? That means they're walking around up there carrying bowls of incense that are literally the prayers of the saints. All right? So, once again, you can't take something that is figurative and make it into something literal. And everything in this vision is full of visual imagery, but it's not literal. Just like Jesus is not literally a slain lamb, And we brought that out earlier because the lamb didn't literally walk up and take the scroll, which I don't believe there's actually a literal scroll that he took. This is all trying to teach us something through a big picture, okay? And by the way, another argument you can explain is just because something happens in heaven doesn't mean that it's going to take place here on earth. For example, there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus made that very clear. Now, wouldn't it be heavenly if we just dissolved all the marriages? I don't think so. Yeah, that's not how it works. Just because you, something happens here, just because something happens in heaven doesn't mean it's the right thing for here on earth. Just like we don't go back to the Old Testament for things that we need, want to do in the New Testament. Okay? You go back too far in the past, you've gone back too far. You go too far in the future, you've gone too far. But the answer to any of it is the fact, why pull out harp and make it literal when nothing else in the passage is literal? Okay? I just want to make sure you, you see that. All right. So... But here's a question we do need to ask. If harps are symbolic, which they are, what are they symbolic of? And it helps if you look at the whole verse. Worship, praise, okay? You've got praise and prayer going on here. The writer helps us out with the second part. He could have just said harps and bowls of incense and left it at that. 
But instead, the writer said harps and bowls of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. So you've got really something being explained here without defining both of them. The bowls of incense represent one aspect that we do here on this earth as far as giving glory and honor to God, and the other represents the other aspect. What are the two ways we talk to God here on this earth? We talk to Him via our prayers, and we talk to Him via our praise. And so that's what's being described here. And so the four and twenty elders and the four beasts are doing this. The emphasis on the fact that they are giving God the, the praise and showing that he, or giving to the Lamb who is Jesus, uh, the praise that he deserves and, and, and shows that he is indeed the one that deserves the praise because he, they are the ones carrying the, the bowls of incense which represents the prayers of the saints. Now, the thing that strikes me in this verse here, once again, it's symbolic, but it's symbolic for a reason and something that would be very dear and near to those of the first century and should be very dear and near to us is that when we pray, we never pray alone. You ever thought about that? That when our prayers go up to heaven, first of all, we have Jesus, who is our mediator. He's the one that goes before God. Um, you know, he goes before God with our prayers. The Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with utterings. That, you know, we can't figure out what to say. The Holy Spirit's there to help us. But this verse leaves you with the implication that all of heaven is on your side. And when you pray a prayer to God, that everybody in heaven wants to help you out with that prayer. Emphasizing that God is on your side. And, and, those, and those people who are being persecuted in the first century, as is the case this book was written to, that would be something that would give them a, a lot of hope. That not only is God listening to my prayers, the Lamb is listening to my prayers, the heavenly host of heaven is listening to my prayers. Because they're there on display. That's the whole idea of the bowls of incense. They're there on display for everyone to see. And I don't know if there's symbolism in the fact that the four beasts represents everything of creation and the four and twenty elders uh, represent both the old and the new that regardless of what dispensation you lived in, the prayers of God's people are very, very important. And that, if anything, should make us want to pray more that our prayers do not go unanswered. may not be the answer we want, but they're being listened to. And they, they take great priority in heaven that they're even a part of this particular scene right here when the four and twenty elders and the four beasts erupt with praise for God. One of the things that's a part of it is these prayers of the saints. All right, before we leave that, any questions or comments? Anybody, anybody anything? All right, you'll do very well on the final exam. Also, I want to point out before we leave this verse, notice it says the prayers of the saints. And I believe all of you are already aware of this, but emphasize just in case. The saints that's being talked about here are not the New Orleans saints, obviously, because uh, you can tell God wasn't on their side if you saw what happened to that game the other day. Um, that referee messed that call. But, and the saints that are mentioned here are not the saints like some of the religious world tells us that some type of super Christian that performed a miracle and been venerated by the Pope. The saints here are Christians. That's all that means. The word saint comes from the Greek word hagios, which means those who have been set apart or those who have been made holy. And that's all a saint is. A saint is a Christian. So the idea here, here is that God is hearing the prayers 
The four and twenty elders are carrying these, bowl, uh, these bowls uh, of, of sweet-smelling incense that represents these prayers, and those are the prayers of you and I, just your everyday normal Christian. You don't have to be a super Christian for God to answer and listen to your prayers. Um, so we need to make sure we always remember that, and we should um, understand that we never, ever pray alone. All right, verse 9, unless somebody else has something. It says in the beginning at verse 9, and they sung a new song. The emphasis here is on new. This is a new song. This is a song that has never been sung before is the idea. It's interesting in the Greek language, there are two words for new. There's neos, which sounds very like new. In fact, if we say something is neo-orthodoxy, that means a new kind of orthodoxy or a new kind of system. Um, you've heard it, I can think, maybe think of some other words where it's used in everyday language. Neo means something new. Um, and you find that particular word in the, in the Greek a lot. But here, in this particular word, for the word uh, Greek, we got the word kainos, okay? Which is a different word for new that's not used very often. Well, let's talk about how they're different. The word new, nuos, means something that is new because of the sake of, of time or placement. For example, something can be new, neos, without it actually being new. For example, if I might go up to you and say, well, I got a new car yesterday. Oh, really? Well, it's a 2015, but it's new to me. In other words, it's something that's already in in existence, but it's new because of the element of time and placement. Uh, You can even do it with a new car. If you buy a 2000 uh, 18 right now, that's a new car, but when the 2019's come out, it might not even have changed at all, but it's no longer really considered a new car because the new cars are out now. You see what I'm saying there? Well, the Greek word kainos means new in the sense that it's new and never been done before. Now, that's something totally different. It's new because something has changed to make it something different. And... Um, I was trying to think of an illustration we could use in everyday life. Um, all right. I, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. A new baby, and by the way, it's Hazel's birthday today. You can tell her happy birthday. Uh, she turned six. Uh, a new baby is still a baby, but this, the, this baby's new to any other baby that's ever been around. Maybe that's the way you're looking at it. So what we got going on here, it says when these four and 20 elders sang a new song, they're singing something that's never been done before. They're singing a song that that is different from anything that's ever been sung before, even though it's still a song. And a lot of people think, and myself included to this, that this is a reference going all the way back to uh, Exodus chapter 15 when the people of Egypt were coming out of the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 15, what happens there? Remember? Moses and the people of Israel sing a song. A song of deliverance, okay? Uh, They thank God for destroying Pharaoh and for leading them through the Red Sea and and taking them uh, to the promised land. And the reason why most people think that this is what's being described here, because if you'll turn over just a few chapters to chapter 15 of Revelation and look at verse 3, it says, And they sang the song of Moses and the servant of the God, and the song of the Lamb. 
So what are they singing? Well, they're singing now. That's a combination of the song of Moses, who is a servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So they're singing two songs now. What songs are they singing? Well, the first one they're singing is the one from Exodus 15. And the second one they're singing is more than likely this one we're looking at right here. I don't know that for a fact, but here's the song of the Lamb that the foreign elders, four and twenty elders are singing, the four beasts are singing. Now, here's another thing to ponder about. I can't believe so many commentators don't even pick up on this kind of stuff. But is there any parallels between what happened with Moses and the Israelite people and what's going on with the first century church and why they should be singing a new song? Any parallels? Well, Moses and his people were being delivered from captivity in Egypt. The first century church, well, captivity of sin, but specifically Rome, okay? Um, to leave Egypt and start their journey to the promised land, what did they do? What was the thing that had to happen before they could leave? They left Egypt and they're trying to escape. What happened? All right, they had the blood. And, of course, obviously there's the parallel of Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, I've pointed this illustration out before, but in case you missed it, weren't here or whatever, you notice when they put the blood on the doorpost, they put the blood on the top and on the two sides, and the blood went down from the top and hit the, the ground below. And if you look at a picture of the cross, what do you have? The crown of thorns, you have the nails in the hands, you have the nails in the feet. Beautiful parallel. All right? Before they could take advantage of what had been done on the doorway and to fully escape Egyptian captivity, what happened, what happened next? They had to go through the Red Sea. They went through the Red Sea, and once they went through the Red Sea, the Egyptians were destroyed, and they're on their way to the Promised Land. Is there any parallel to us? Baptism. In fact, if you don't think that's the case, just read 1 Corinthians 10. Paul very clearly says, just like the Israelites went through the Red Sea and were baptized, he uses the word baptized, and he, said, and he explains himself by saying there was a cloud over top, which is water, and water on both sides. They were completely covered and immersed, so they were baptized in the Red Sea. We, of course, are baptized in water in the, and through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right? And so... On the way to the promised land, what did they have to put up with? Had to put up with anything or just smooth sailing all the way? Had to put up with each other? They had to put up with the wilderness? They had to put up with all kinds of things. You see, they escaped Egyptian captivity, and they're on the way to the promised land, but man, that wandering through the wilderness was rough stuff. And the parallel for the first century church is, you're a Christian. You've done what God told you to do in order to be saved. You've been baptized. But let me tell you something. You're being persecuted. And they're well aware of the fact that they were being persecuted. And, of course, the inroad for the Israelite people was the promised land. And, of course, the inroad here is heaven. And so a lot of people think that this is new song that they're singing is saying, yeah, Moses had his song of deliverance, but I'm giving you a new song, an even better song. Because of the fact, well, what does the text say? He says, you are worthy. And the reason why you're worthy, the reason why we're singing this song is because of redemption. You have provided us with redemption. And in verses uh, 9 and 10, you see both the reason 
that there is redemption, the reach of redemption, and you see the result of redemption. All three right there. There's your short sermon if you want it for Wednesday night or Sunday night, okay? First of all, we see the reason of redemption. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. In other words, the reason why there is redemption is because Jesus Christ died. The lamb was slain. And the word redeemed, we hear it so much associated with Christianity, we forget what it means. But to redeem something means to pay the price, to buy it back. But you know what a redemption ticket is. I dropped some clothes off at the cleaners today, get some shirts clean, and she gave me a ticket, and I have to bring that ticket back to pick up my clothes, make sure I'm not trying to steal somebody's shirts, okay? That's a redemption ticket, so I can buy it, get it back. Well, the same thing happened. We were lost because of sin, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. And that is the reason why this is a song of redemption because of what Jesus Christ has done. But look at the reach of the redemption. It says, out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. How far does this redemption go that's being sung here? Everywhere. Everybody. Doesn't matter who you are. This redemption can apply to you. That's the way God's redemption works. He wants all people to say, he wants all to come to repentance. And it doesn't matter what uh, blood you are, it doesn't matter what uh, tribe you belong to, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter what family you are part of, it doesn't matter what country you're a native of, regardless of who you are, this redemption is for you. And that's what makes this song so powerful they're singing and why they're singing such a great praise to God that you've done this, you've provided redemption, and it's for everybody. But then look at the result in verse 10 of this redemption. And thou hast made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Whether you realize it or not, if you are a Christian, you are a king. And if you are a Christian, you are a priest. Now, first is easy. How are we priests? Or the second is easy. How are we priests? What does it mean when he calls us priests? All right, in the Old Testament, the priesthood was, the tribe of Levi was the purpose of being an intermediary between God and man, with the high priest being the main one that would go in there once a year on the, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur and provide the sacrifice for the whole nation. But we don't have to be separated from God anymore. We can directly approach God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, let us boldly come before the throne of grace and mercy. We can boldly come before God. And the reason why we boldly can is because we are now priests ourselves with Jesus Christ being our high priest. And so we have access to God we never had before. But the other thing here, how in the world are we kings? Okay, a kingdom of priests. And, and, that's, and that's really the key to it. We, Christ has a kingdom, and we are a part of that kingdom. That's what's being alluded to here. We are a part of that kingdom. But still we need to answer the question in the latter part of verse 10 is how are we reigning here on this earth? Not only does it say that we're kings and priests, it says, um, depending on which translations you have, some say shall, some say will. There's a lot of controversy about what the original language said there, but, but either way it still works because we're priests now, 
and so shall works. And so the, the aspect of kings will work also, or if it's will, it makes sense too. But anyway, how are we reigning on earth? How do, how do we reign on earth as kings and priests right now? What does that mean, we're reigning? Does that mean I get to go around the neighborhood and say, I'm the king, you better listen to me. All right, sharing the gospel is a part of it. But that, go ahead, because we can call on God. All right, that's getting closer to what I'm thinking of. You know, we think of, go ahead, Jamie. All right, I like that idea. You know, we think of reign, we, we automatically think of the idea that we're in charge. That's really not what's being brought about here. Um, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it. Um, I'll tell you what, look at, um, look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Remember what he said there? He said, To him that overcome will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. Okay? How are we sitting with Jesus on his throne? It's not because we're sitting as rulers. We're sitting because we overcame. If you look down at uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, what is going on there with the 4 and 20 elders? And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Does that mean that they had crowns because they were reigning over the earth? No, we pointed out that those crowns were crowns of victory. It's a different word. It's not the word diadem for authority, but it's the word stephanus, which means a crown of victory. And so you start thinking about it from that standpoint, and then... Um, Tell you what, turn over, hold, don't lose your place here, but turn over real quick to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And here's the way Paul uses this idea of reigning. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 beginning. It says, Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. So we've been translated into the kingdom of God or moved into the kingdom of God. And now look over at Romans chapter, chapter 5 and verse 21. Begin with verse 20. Notice how Paul uses this now. He says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abound, grace did much more abound. That as sin had reigned unto death, even so the righteous, even so might grace reign through righteousness into eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the idea of reigning. That we are victorious, we have overcome. When we were being we were reigned in death because of sin, but now we're reigning in righteousness because of God's grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Yeah, we're in a different kingdom. In fact, the, the very term church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. We have been called out from this world into the marvelous light, as it's put in the, in the New Testament. And so the reigning here as kings and priests doesn't mean to reign in the sense that we have some kind of uh, authority over the world in, in the sense that we do, but it's more of the idea of victory. We're part of a kingdom, and that, that kingdom is victorious, and we're reigning in that victorious kingdom. Any questions or comments or anything? I hope that made sense. I didn't lose anybody there. All right, let's try to move on.
All right, here we go in verse 11 with the second wave. Remember I told you these circles of, of, of just of eruption of praise and worship is carrying on. First wave was the four and twenty elders and the four beasts. Here's the next group. And it says, And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders and the numbers of them were ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. So the next wave we brought into this praise worship service is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of elders, I mean of angels. Now, you can sit here and try to multiply that and see what that is, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is there's angels everywhere. There's angels everywhere. I'm just curious, does anybody have the word myrid in their Bibles? What does that word mean? Yeah. It's weird. Some, some translations took that word. The King James translates it 10,000, but they, they um, transliterated it into English. The actual Greek word is, uh, is myrid, but it means unnum- innumerable or unnumberable. You can't number it. So really what you got over here is the idea that, that, that what we're seeing in our minds now in this setting, this second wave, there's so many angels you can't count them all. But make sure you don't miss what's happening here. Don't miss that you don't get called up in it. If we were able to see a movie of this, this would be just astounding. But you have the lamb reaching out and taking that scroll, and as soon as that happened, boom, the four and twenty elders just go, another way to put it, go crazy. They just start singing praises of God, and then all of a sudden after they get through, boom, a second round starts, and it's all these angels that are singing praises of God, and there's just so many of them you can't count it. You know, they announced Sunday that in a um, couple of weeks we're going to have the men's day, and if you've ever gone to a men's day, and you've heard 600 men singing all at one time. Oh, that just make, almost makes the hair on your arm stand up, doesn't it, Frankie? But can you imagine being in a scene with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of angels singing to God all at one time? Can you imagine what that service is like? And what it would be like to be a part of that? It's supposed to boggle the mind and just be so awesome you can't hardly think about it. And, and that's the second thing that happens. And listen to what they're saying in verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, we could take the time to break down every one of those words and what they mean, but they basically mean what they mean, what they're singing here. But if you notice and look at the different words that are there, and you kind of put them all together, is there anything that, that kind of catches your eye, at least it caught my eye. These angels are singing, and they describe why the Lamb is worthy to, to receive, and they name these things here. Is there anything that kind of catches your eye? This might have not have a thing to do with anything, but count the words. How many are there? Seven. So... Who knows, you know, we've talked about seven being the perfect number. Maybe what they're doing here by using these terms, they're giving God, I mean, giving the Lamb the perfect praise, which angels would do. All right, very quickly, because we're running out of time. Now in verse 13, boom, we got the third wave coming. It's this third circle. And it says, Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea and are such are in the sea and all that are in them, heard them I heard them saying, 
blessing and honor and glory and power to be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. All right? Here's the last big circle of praise happening now as it expands out. Starts with these four and twenty elders and the four beasts, and it moves to these thousands and thousands of angels. And now we've got this last circle of praise. And who's in this last circle of praise? Everybody. Everything, everywhere. In other words, all of creation is now praising God. And notice he's not, they're not just praising the Lamb, they're praising God. They combine the two again, affirming the fact that the Lamb is also God. They're all giving them the praise that they deserve. And um, what does that tell us about ourselves and why we were created? What's the main reason why God created everything on this earth? To worship and praise Him. And folks, that should make us think the next time we're in worship service and we have a song service and we're singing praises to God. And I want you to think, you know, if we were created for praise and you've got this scene that we can picture in our mind now of what's happening here in heaven. And I can't imagine the four and twenty elders. I can't imagine these angels. I can't imagine these other creatures that are being described in verse 13 uh, singing a song and not singing it with any meaning singing a song and, and, and not putting any effort behind it, singing a song and not putting any heart in it, singing a song and not think about what you're doing, singing a song and not realizing I'm talking to God Almighty. Uh, this, this verse right here should, if you think about it and think about the scene that we have there and then put ourselves in the scene of a worship service, it makes us realize, man, we've got a lot of work to do. We have really got to think about our praise and realize that our singing it's not just something we do that's a part of the worship service because it's commanded. It's not just something we do out of custom, but it's a very important part of a worship service because we're a part of that throng that's praising God and the Lamb. And we need to think about that every single time we sing a song and praise to God. It's not just something we do. It's one of the most important things we do in our entire life. Of course, it's the reason why we've been created is to give God the praise that He deserves. All right. One last verse, and we actually will finish on, on time. And it says, And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And the idea in this verse, if you look at the way it's set up in the Greek, is they just didn't say Amen. They were saying Amen after every one of these things that happened. In other words, when it says, And they sung a new song, Thou art worthy, and we're not going to read all of it again, the, the four beasts said, Amen. And the 20, four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him. When the angels were singing, they said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him. And when the all creation were singing, they said, Amen. And they all fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. What a beautiful, beautiful scene John has painted for us. He's given us a glimpse of the throne room of God. He's given us the glimpse of the glory and honor that Jesus Christ deserves. And the purpose of these two books, as we start moving into chapter 6, John's telling us through Jesus Christ, whatever you hear, whatever you see, you don't forget that God is on his throne and Jesus has died for you and it's going to be okay. Yes, Chris? So be it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it is the case. In fact, literally the word amen means it is true. It is true. So let it be. It is true. All right. So we move into chapter 6 next week. And really chapter 6 is the rest of the book of the Revelation because everything that happens from the rest of the book is based on what 
these seven seals. These seven seals will keep breaking down into other little bitty things until we get to the end of the book. But anyway, any questions or comments?